good leadership kind of pushes them beyond that, not beyond what they truly are capable of, and that's one of the tricks of leadership is being able to figure out where's that line, but they're always capable of doing a lot more than they tend to think. My guest today is David Cody. When David took over as CEO of Honeywell in 2002, the company was a train wreck. David quickly saw that as bad as the company looked from the outside, it looked even worse from the inside. Honeywell was plagued with unhealthy and aggressive business practices, a huge asbestos liability, and a culture that was no longer inspired. He didn't have many believers in his corner. In fact, he wasn't Honeywell's first choice. His management team viewed him as an outsider, and for the first four and a half months, he wasn't even allowed to see the company's financials, even though he was the CEO. Under David's leadership over the next 16 years, ending in 2018, Honeywell's market cap rose from $20 billion to over $120 billion, and the company's stock soared over 800%, more than two and a half times the S&P 500's return. David's book is Winning Now, Winning Later, how companies can succeed in the short term while investing for the long term. Forbes said that David's book is one of the best guides ever on how to lead a company. I recently sat down with David and we talked about how leadership matters. If you run a local coffee shop or the largest Fortune 500 company, his approach can help strengthen your business no matter how dire the current circumstances may seem. Dave, Thanks so much for coming on the show. I want to tell you, I've been following you for a long time, not stalking, but following you, following your accomplishments. <laughs> and last year, I think it was last August, you came out with your book, and I said, I want this guy on my show. I have so much to talk to you about, but uh, through mutual friends, I was learning more about you, just following what you're doing, and I'm really excited to have you here today. Well, it's very kind of you to say, and geez, I guess my bad for not realizing that uh, somebody with your reputation uh, didn't didn't penetrate early on. That's okay. No, no problem. I'm glad you're here today. So the, the name of the book is Winning Now, Winning Later. And uh, what's the real, what's the full name of this? This is, a full, this is a really big name. Winning Now, Winning Later. How companies can succeed in the short term while investing for the long term. So it's great that marketing got it down to just a few top words there, huh? So, so, so a good title. Um, I'd say book publishing. I ended up learning was a whole different kind of industry. I wrote, I wrote one book, getting started in value investing. I wrote it in two thousand six. It was printed two thousand seven. You couldn't pick a worse time in the world. October two thousand seven. It comes out at the top of the market, and they said, "Are you ready for writing another book?" I said, "Never again." It just tore my guts out. A year's time. You just got to research and find. It's just and and the return is what you know. It's. But uh, it's a lot more work than anybody realizes to put out a quality product. Oh. That being said, it was oh. worth the effort. We got, you know, great reviews from guys like Hank Paulson, who said it was the best business book he'd read in his life, which I got to say made me feel pretty good. I want to tell you just to dovetail on him on what he why he well, I don't know why he said that. But let me tell you what I got out of it. Ninety nine percent of business books are really one page with one idea surrounded by 200 yes. to 300 pages of crap. And I, when I printed, when I came out with my book, it was around 80 or 90 pages. And the publisher said, it was Wiley, great publisher, love him, God bless him, and thank you for publishing my book, unknown, art, unknown author. They said, we can't sell this book if you don't have at least 200 pages. 
at 300 pages, we get X amount. We can sell for 20 or 90 dollars We can't sell it for less. I said, but I have no filler. Well, add some good stuff. And I think, you know, all these books on management, and they, it's one page, and you just get sick of the stories. Well, I always said uh, most business books would make great pamphlets because it's 10 pages of concept followed by 280 pages of stories that just say the same thing over and over again. Oh, man. And that's why you can fly through business books. Yeah, I, I don't even. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something where every page had something substantive that caused you to think. Before we even begin talking about the book, which I'm really excited to talk about, it's just, I, I really, you know, in my organization uh, last week, I recommended it to everybody. I sent a, uh, a video of you, you. at Columbia, at, uh, CBS, Columbia Business School. I said, <laughs> just watch that. And we yeah. got to start implementing these things. And it's common sense. There's nothing here, by the way, folks, when we get into it, there is no rocket science here. It doesn't mean to say Dave is not a rocket scientist, but it, business is about making things, selling things, and treating people well. That's really it. It is, we could put all the crap around it, but that's what business is all about. But anyway, before we even begin, before we even begin, I want to talk about your, well, well hold on. Let me back up one second. This, folks, here's a guy who took Honeywell from $20 billion to $120 billion in market cap. And I think the stock went up, what, 900%? Is that right? Yeah, uh, 800, two and a half times S&P. Eight and a half, 800%. And I was smart enough not to invest one nickel throughout his whole tenure at Honeywell because <laughs> I never thought the time was right. <laughs> so that's what a genius I am. <laughs> well, you, uh, from what you said, you were smart when it came to Vertiv, though. So you ought to take credit for that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I got to make up for lost time. I really do. Um, <laughs> all right. So before we begin talking about the book, and there are so many great things with the book, and that's why your book, you, you did it. You know, you came, in a terrible, you came into a terrible situation. You had nobody cheerleading for you. In fact, they were rooting for your failure. Your CFO and your regular, your inner team didn't even want to show you the books. You know, they, they thought you were radioactive, yeah. man. Uh, but all that aside. Well, actually, that started at the board level. The board. So the board. That wasn't just that. The board hires you and says, keep your nose out of the numbers. Correct. And that was uh, at the request of the chairman and the rest of the board. And they told me not to look at the numbers for the four, first four and a half months till I became chairman. It was my job to just learn the company. And I can remember asking a finance guy a couple of times, uh, different ones, and just saying, uh, you know, how's the quarter going? Just a kind of a typical question. And both times I was told, I'm sorry, Dave, but I've been instructed not to answer any questions like that from you. Wow. 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 Talk, 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 okay. about, talk about a confidence uh, builder, huh? Yeah, so much for being CEO, but I thought, okay, it's four and a half months. I'll just live with it. But it seemed kind of odd to me. Yeah. It just, uh, and then I ended up learning there was a reason for that because things were in such sad shape. There was a reason for keeping it hidden. Yeah, you know, it looked even worse from the inside than it looked from the outside, if that was even possible. Yep, exactly. All right, so before we begin, how does a guy in a family, working-class family, you're one of eight living in a house with one toilet, one shower, one bathroom, uh, you have a 1.8 GPA, so you're not the sharpest student in the world, <laughs> you're living in New Hampshire, you're... 
your windows are drafty, you have a kid, you're married, your fishing boat career just plummeted because the guy's wife who your partner's with said, what a nut this guy is, stay away from him. You're there. How the <laughs> heck do you become CEO of Honeywell and write a book and teach America what's important about business? Well, uh, you're right. I mean, those early days were fraught with maybe not disaster, but certainly bad decisions. <clears throat> and um, I credit my oldest son with uh, the change in my life because he was my, I, in fact, I tell him this all the time, he was an epiphany for me because I'm sitting up there in this uninsulated, unheated apartment in New Hampshire and all of a sudden wife is pregnant, says she can't work anymore. And I realize even with buying no Christmas gifts or anything like that, we're spending two bucks a week more than I'm making. And I had a hundred bucks in the bank and had 50 weeks left. So I figured I had 50 weeks left to figure out what to do. The only thing I seemed to be good at was school. Anything I tried to do mechanically just didn't work. So I went, I quit smoking cigarettes, started exercising, went back to school, got a 4-0 that year because I actually paid attention and showed up at class, worked nights, went to school days. And I just focused on, I need to make uh, more money. And for a long time, every week I would sit there trying to figure out which bills had to be paid because the collection guys would come by and which ones could I let slide because nobody would bother me for another week or two. And I hated living like that. And I told myself I was going to get my, I was going to get myself out of it. And that's what caused me to just really kind of buckle down. And I'd say in the beginning, I was just driven by a need to make more money just to survive. And it was only when I started to realize that I actually enjoyed the work I was doing, I enjoyed the accomplishment, and started to think about, well, maybe I could do this, maybe I could do that. And it wasn't until I was uh, 39, maybe 40 years old before I thought, gee, you know, maybe I could be a CEO somewhere. Up to that point, it never even entered my mind. You know, you know what I find fascinating? Uh, your book's great stuff, and we'll get into that in a second. But your story is not only the American dream, but how someone could change their life, even at, at, you know, at middle age. And just because you went to bed as, uh, with a GPA of 1.8 and you couldn't pay your bills, didn't mean tomorrow you have to wake up that way. You could take control of your life and change it. And you didn't do it coming from Wharton. You went to, I think, University of New Hampshire or uh, right, some, yeah. Right? Yeah. no Ivy League schooling, no basic contacts. Uh, your, f your uncle was a carpenter. So, so you're a working class guy. And you just came to that realization of, I got to get my life together. Yeah. Well, I agree with everything you just said. I, I, I need to correct. I got a 1.8 just one semester. I, uh, <laughs> okay. That's when I decided to just, I was going to become a fisherman. So I stopped uh, going to school. But it's a point that I make to a lot of people. Uh, yeah, you do need to have the aptitude for things. There's no doubt about it. But it's really surprising what you can accomplish if you uh, just stay focused, have a goal. Doesn't mean you'll always get there, but you can change your life if you want to. And your life doesn't have to be over at 25 or 35 or 45. You can always change it. And just because you've inherited certain conditions doesn't mean it has to stay that way. In fact, one of the phrases I've always hated is when people say, well, you know, he's keeping it real. 
And look, I said, well, you know, if I'd kept it real, I'd have stayed stuck in New Hampshire uh, in a mill type job, never going any further because I was the first one in my family to graduate from high school. So that was viewed as an accomplishment in my family, the fact that I'd done that. And yeah, I could have just stayed right there, but, and I had no idea what was possible. But if you get out there, you start pushing, see what you can do, see what you're made of. There's no reason you should allow anybody to ever put a limit on you. And one of the things that I also found interesting is some of the tougher limiters can be your own family and friends. And I don't know what causes it, whether it's they want to keep you right where you are or they know you, uh, they think really well. But I've talked to others where the same thing has happened, where their friends were the ones who were kind of inhibiting them. So you have to think it through for yourself and have to decide what it is you want. And the advice I've given to a lot of people, and I do it to kids, middle-aged folks, is say, picture yourself 60 years old. Look back on your life. What would you like to be able to say about yourself? And it depends on who you are. Some people like to be able to say, yeah, I played it safe and it worked out. I just wanted this kind of job, not having to do too much, live in the same house. And that's fine. But there are others, and I was one of them, who I thought, I don't want to be 60 years old and look back and say, gee, I wonder if I could have done it. I said That'll drive me crazy. I don't want to be 60 years old and questioning myself like that. If I, I'd rather find out whether I can or I can't. Now, I thought I could. Otherwise, I wouldn't have tried it. But I find it quite rewarding that it actually worked out as a result. Yeah. And, and you know... Um... Uh, I have a, we had a, a guest on who was a captain in the uh, Marines, and he's a PhD, finance, leads a $1.5 billion money management firm, and he told me something about 11 years ago. He goes, we have a Marine saying, grow where you're planted. Wherever you're stuck, don't bitch about the problem. Go ahead and solve it, whatever it is. Deal with what you have. Oh, right that's pretty good. Us. I like that. Oh, I remember I, I, he was just recently on the show, and he basically said, the Marines, we have a saying, grow where you're planted. So wherever you're done, take whatever you, every, anything around you and just make it work because you bitch about it, you can end up in the same spot and nothing changes. So I think that's what you did. You just- You are, well, to, to, I mean, to that point, there were two, maybe three times during the course of my career when I ended up having to take a job that I did not want and was not consistent with what I thought my goals were going to be. And what you do is you take the, and one of them, uh, was a job that I got, and three months later, they cut the job in half. And I thought, well, th this is a killer. But you find a way still to differentiate, to grow, to have people notice your outperformance, and to say, gee, maybe we ought to give this guy uh, another opportunity. So I, I like that phrase. I think that's a good one. They just grow where you're planted. You know, I tell my kids that. I tell my boys that. And um, and it just always served me well. And in, in fact, when I just spoke to... Uh, um, Captain Wes Gray, who runs this firm now, and I told him, I said, I got to thank you. 11 years ago, you told me that. It made, a, it made all the difference. It made all the difference. I, I, you know, I, I'd like, That's a good one. Yeah. It's, it, look, they're Marines, man. They, they know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I like what you wrote. And, and, you know, I looked in the back of the book, and I'm just going to read this out loud because I really, I said, this, 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 should, be like, this should be like the subhead on, on put, put, someone should write this and just put on a post-it. I got my life together to illustrate a simple but underappreciated fact. 
individuals and groups can push themselves much further than they think. Mm-hmm. Boy, is that true. That is so true. And uh, the, the one that I used to use when people in the organization would maintain that they couldn't or uh, didn't have the capability or whatever. <clears throat> and I'd point to uh, stories about like plane crashes in Brazil and this 17-year-old girl uh, who's not even in condition manages to walk 40 miles out of the jungle and all of a sudden show up in a city. And everybody's wondering, how did she do it? Well, the fact is, there was a lot more to her than she or anybody else ever realized. And organizations are the same way. It's uh, Organizations and people are very self-limiting. And good leadership kind of pushes them beyond that, not beyond what they truly are capable of. And that's one of the tricks of leadership is being able to figure out where's that line. But they're always capable of doing a lot more than they tend to think they can. Now, I know that's probably I'm saying all, but there's a, always people who are exceptions. But in general, I'd say that's very true. Yeah, think about what we went through last year during COVID. Many, you know, you ever think that you could work and the business could be successful, decentralized, people work out of their homes, out of their basements with their kids and their pets. But they did. And the economy continued and life went on. And who would have thought that yep. just three months before? You know, mm -hmm. just, yep. Okay. So now let's, let's start moving through your business career because your business career is just absolutely fascinating. There's one part here that I just was literally <laughs> laughing when I saw when uh, you worked at, um, I think it was um, GE silicone, silicone business in 1994, uh, what you inherited there. So you put yourself together. You say, all right, man, I'm changing my life. I, I got to make more money. I got a kid here. I got a wife. I got the cold seeping in through the windows. Where, you, you, you get, what, what's your first job after that? What do you do? My first job, are you talking about silicones or? No, right before that, right, way before that. When you, when you want to start putting your life together and you say, you know, I could do so yeah. much more. Where do you go? You don't end up as CEO of Honeywell in a day. You go through a career oh, path. No. Right. So what's your first, what's your first big job after you uh, put everything together? Well, uh, remember, I, I was an hourly employee uh, working the night shift, working a punch press at uh, GE. Could you explain to most people? And when I graduated. Could, Dave, could you explain to most people what a punch press is? Because we have many viewers who have no idea what a punch press is. Yeah, it's where uh, you take a small piece of metal, you put it in the machine, you hit two buttons, this press comes down from the top, does something to the metal. It can compress it, cut it, do a number of things. And then you take that piece of metal out and you put it in a basket. And I would do that from 3,000 to 7,000 times a night. Okay. And it's one of the reasons why my hearing is not always quite so good because we didn't have ear protection then. And I'd go home with headaches sometimes just from the noise of the thing. Okay. So, you, so that was, you, you, weren't split, so that was, you weren't splitting the atom here. You were doing pretty manual labor right at the bottom, <laughs> hourly labor. That, that's the point I want to get across. You had no cushy job. No, 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 that, far from it. And interestingly, while I can't say I liked the job, I ended up learning a lot there that made me a more successful leader overall because I had a better understanding of what is it like for people who are working like that? And that's what their life is. 
and how do they look at things? And it's one of the reasons why I used to tell uh, my own folks, look, when you go to a plant and you talk to the people there, don't spend all your time talking about the total company or the stock price. They really don't care. It's, it doesn't really matter to them. What they really want to know is, am I going to have a job here five years from now? And what can I do to make sure that I increase the chances that I'll have a job? And just recognize it's a different perspective. Also, just stuff like, um, <laughs> I can remember they had this company-wide effort to uh, focus on quality. And remember, I'm a um, hourly employee, but I'm also going to college. So I spent a bunch of time trying to understand this quality board, well, a bunch of time. Whenever I had a break, I figured, okay, this is a way for me to learn. So I keep reading this board called Customer Squawks. And I do this for a couple of nights. So, you know, four times. So I spent 40 minutes uh, looking at this thing. And finally, a foreman's walking by. And I said, hey, uh, excuse me, but could you tell me how do I read this thing? How do I know what it's saying? And he said, uh, nobody understands that thing. That's just some of the stupid money the quality guys spend to make it look like they're doing something. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, that's the sort of thing as a leader I became a lot more sensitive to and saying, okay, how do whatever we do make sure it resonates with the people that we're trying to inform you know, in a way that makes sense to them? So I, gra I graduated and was still an hourly employee and did not have an exempt job at that point because uh, it was a recession. It was 76. That was the OPEC recession we were still dealing with. Uh, not a lot of jobs around. I only had uh, two interviews, neither of which I got because I actually wanted to be a security analyst, was what I thought would be fun to do. And this accounts payable job was posted. And my lead hand told me, uh, geez, why don't you apply for it? And I remember saying, well, I don't know anything about accounts payable. And he said, well, you've got a college diploma, for God's sake. Why don't you at least apply? And I remember thinking, God, he's right. You know, why, why am I putting this limit on myself and kind of caught, I, I should be trying to grab opportunities that I can if I'm trying to uh, advance my family. So I applied and come to find out it was something called a bag job, meaning they already knew who was going to get it. They were just going through the posting process so that it looked like uh, they'd done everything right. And it ended up going through three separate interviews. And what they ended up doing was saying, okay, uh, this other person who we'd allocated the job to, she gets the job. And this guy goes to Lynn Mass as an internal auditor in the jet engine business. And I knew nothing about auditing or anything like that. But it was just a great place to learn. And I, I worked with a good bunch of people. And like I said, my boss took an interest in me because I was an experiment for him. They'd always wondered if a manufacturing guy could become a financial auditor and would that give them a different perspective on things. So I was a bit of an experiment for them. And the experiment worked. Everything worked out great. And from there, I went on to the GE's corporate audit staff where I was only home about 60 days a year. Of the five years, two of the years were spent outside the country. And it was 80 to 100 hour work weeks. It was pretty intense. But man, did I learn a lot. It was, in terms of advancing learning about countries, people, different kinds of businesses, it just unbelievably accelerated my learning and opened my mind up to what was possible out there. 
Yeah, you know, it's also, you know, just to point out, it's not only it's, it's your attitude. Anyone else would have taken that job and or any of those jobs. What am I punching metal for? What am I going to get out of this? Let me look for something else. But you basically had your antennas up. You had the attitude of let me learn as much as I can, keep my ears open, and opportunity will find you. Yep, and it did because my um, after I got off that audit staff, just to uh, you know, getting this back to this point about how you treat people, uh, I ended up getting a job, and a year after I had it, it consolidated with another business, and my job and all the others were disappeared, and there weren't a lot of jobs in the company uh, at at the time because we were just going through getting the ramifications of the uh, another recession, and. There were no jobs. I was sending resumes out, hoping to get a job somewhere. And all of a sudden, I get a call from the person who was the finance guy uh, running finance HR. And he gives me a call and said, uh, Dave, there's one, only one job in the company open at your level. This is GE. So it shows you how tight it was. Mm. Uh, and he said, it's yours if you want it. And obviously, given the alternative, which was no job at all, it looked pretty good. And um, I said, geez, that's great, Denny. Um, appreciate it, but um, why? What? Uh, uh, why me? And I thought he was going to say, you know, need special auditing skills or something like that. And he said, well, remember when you audited me? I said, yeah. He said, well, you wrote me up more than anybody had in my entire career. But you were nice about it. I ended up liking you when the whole thing was done. And I thought, that's worth something. And that really stuck with me. It was kind of like, okay, you can do your job. You don't have to be a twit about it and just be a regular person. And it's really, which I have to say, my mom is, you know, big teachings from my mom and dad. But I always, that really stuck with me was that it was just, yeah, you were just nice about it. You knew what you were doing. You wrote me up more than anybody else, but you were nice about it. it makes a difference. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing you say that because I remember listening to Munger, Charlie Munger talk and said, when you do positive things in this world, there's an invisible force that just pushes you forward. Do negative things and it'll push you back. And a couple of months ago, but you know, more than about a year ago, I'm walking home with a friend of mine. He says, look, I'm looking for a CEO and it's a $300,000 job. And um, I was thinking about so-and-so. Now, I had a dealing with Mr. So-and-so years ago, and it wasn't anything major on business, but the way the guy acted was really not nice. I wouldn't want him as a brother-in-law. And uh, I looked and I just went like this. I just went, eh, not for me. But, you know, interview him. He says, nope, this guy just lost a $300,000 job. He didn't know that by just making that, one, acting just a little terrible to certain people, how much it cost. And, I, and it hit me that there are so many things you go through life, it's those little, man, call up Cody. He's a nice guy. And you never knew what that was. You held the door open for someone. Uh, or just the flip side of, yeah. Matt Mizrahi, he's a loud mouth. Don't, <laughs> you never know those opportunities you could have had or lost by just not being a, good, a nice person. Yeah. And you'll never see him show up in the box yeah, score. And for me, it's, it gets back to this character matters. And if you have the opportunity to do somebody a favor and it's not that hard for you to do, do it. And I remember this guy, uh, you know, I had about a seven mile drive home. This other guy who was uh, my boss at the time uh, had a six mile drive home. And 
I was stuck for a ride one day and said, hey, would you mind giving me a ride home? And he said, well, that's a mile out of my way, dude. <laughs> I looked at him and said, well, uh, that's true. If that's how you want to look at it, I, I, I guess that's true. And instead, I had to scramble and try to find somebody who would be willing to go more than that out of their way to allow me to get home. And that, that guy, uh, you know, I knew what happened in his career, and he didn't end up doing so well. Smart yeah. enough guy, but just didn't do quite so well. You know, my litmus test is when you ask someone, could you do me a favor? There's usually three responses. The first response is the great one. Absolutely. They don't even know what it is. Second one is, it depends. And the third one is, No. So I try to stay away from those two of those, and I just try to find people that, and, and I respond the same way. Could you do me a favor? Sure. What is it? And, you know, you see those kinds of, you're taking me a mile out of your way. And I think it just, it really gives you an insight into, I don't care how smart a person is, I don't care how gifted they are, it kind of speaks to the attitude that they're going to bring to the game. Those aren't the plays I want to be around. Yep. Character matters. You know, it's, so the people on my team, I ask them anything at three in the morning, I just see two words on it. That's all you need to say on it. Uh, you know, those are the people. And uh, you have to go through a hundred of them to find one. And, and it's worth it. It's worth everything. And so for those- I'm impressed you do an email at three in the morning. Oh, no. I have, I have one analyst who I send stuff at 3.30 in the morning because sometimes I'm not sleeping. And he responds in a half hour. I say, you don't have to. Our HR person said, please don't do those kinds of things. You're not allowed to. But I said, I was right. Please respond at the morning hours and a half hour later. So, <laughs> so we got that. All right, man. So, so you- you then you work at GE, and I want to just point out one thing, which is which is really just blew me away. When my boss introduced me to the team, he casually asked the environmental leader how the fire at the site's underground landfill was going. The environmental leader responded, "That was fine." I asked how long the fire had been raging. He said, four months." I thought it was a joke. It wasn't. It would take us four more months to put the fire out. So you never got into situations yeah. which were the table was set. You went into, into just blood and gunk up to your knees each time. Well, it's, um, it's funny because I've observed that about my own career and said, geez, you know, uh, I didn't advance by always going into the high profile, uh, big image job. And... I don't know what it was. I don't know whether it was my background compared to others or something else, but it was almost like, uh, okay, well, you know, Dave did well with this. This one's, you know, in kind of trouble anyway. Nobody really wants a job. Let's, let's give it to Dave. <laughs> and that's a bit what it felt like. I never got the high profile. Uh, this is where the people who are really going to take off are going to go kind of job. But it also created a heck of a lot of learning for me because when you're dealing with those troublesome situations you learn a lot because you can't just rely on what people are saying you have to figure things out and i always used to look at it and say if i'm going to fail i'm going to fail differently so i'm not just going to do what everybody did before i'm going to figure out what do i have to do differently and hopefully it'll work and by and large it did so you know, uh, you talk about pushing yourself and pushing your team, and you never know. You talk about here, uh, I think it's siloxane. Is my pronouncing that right? S I L. Yep, no, you're pronouncing it correctly. Okay, siloxane production. So you were in a situation here 
where you would have to shut down the production entirely because this siloxane was required for all chemical processes in the plant. All right, boom, 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 yeah. you have a whole bunch of things there. And you didn't take no for an answer. You said, come back to me, it's five o'clock, come back to me the next day, how are we gonna handle this problem? And your team came back and did what? Uh, I'd only been in the job three weeks. And my manufacturing leader comes in and says, uh, we have to shut down siloxane production because we have an air permit issue and it'll shut it, shut the entire plant down for two weeks. And like you said, that's the basic chemical that's used for all the processes. So if you don't make that, then you're not making anything. And I was living. I thought, I can't believe this. I'm only been here three weeks and I'm going to be having to call my boss to tell him what a problem it is. So I couldn't think of what to do. So I just, I just got angry and said, you, the environmental uh, person, uh, an engineer, you guys get together. And by tomorrow, five o'clock, I want a different answer than what you just gave me. And I drove home, ticked off, and then spent the whole night thinking, oh, God, I got to call my boss tomorrow uh, and tell him that what's going to have to happen. And the manufacturing guy meets me at like eight o'clock in my office. You know, like uh, uh, nine hours before he has to. And he said, geez, we solved the problem. I said, what? He said, yeah, we solved the problem. Not only that, it's a $100,000 annual saving. And I, I'm just incredulous. And I'm shaking my head. And I'm saying, well, uh, what happened? So he explains it all. And I said, well, why didn't you just do this in the first place? Then he said, well, nobody ever asked us to before. Wow. And I thought, wow. okay, well, there's another insight into pushing people beyond what they think are capable and having them work together. Because by working together, they were able to come up with a solution instead of this poor schlub just sitting there by himself trying to figure it out. He got together with a team. They bounced ideas off each other. They started thinking about things in a different way. And they ended up with a much better solution. And I, I well, you could tell what an impact it had on me. That happened like 25 years ago, and it's still fresh in my mind. You know, you, you, when, when I'm reading more about you through your book and through other um, interviews you did, which you have several of them on, the, um, on, on YouTube, uh, you spoke at CBS, Columbia Business School, hour and plus lecture, highly recommend, highly recommend watching that, really great stuff. Um, it seems like you went through life with a notepad, and every time you're faced with a challenge, you found the solution and you, and you chalked it up. You wrote it down, you remembered it, and next time it came up, you apply, You already had the model. Yeah, I would say uh, I did try to do that, of course. Uh, but importantly, I tried to watch what other people did. And I would look at like the decisions that my boss made and try to think through, okay, would I have done the same thing? Or would I have done something differently? Uh, how did it turn out? Was he right? Was he wrong? Uh, same thing, just read about other companies and some of the things they might do. Uh, did it work? Did it not work? And you can learn a lot. Uh, I think Yogi must have said something like that. I think it was, you can learn a lot by watching. Mm. And it's true. Just looking at what other people have done or what they are doing, the decisions they're making. Uh, same thing with my uh, whoever I was working for, uh, I would always look at what they were doing and why and try to understand it, why they made the decision the way they did and did it work. And you can learn a lot by doing that.
Well, you're, you're living proof of that. So now let's fast forward. Honeywell just finished a merger. They have, they merged with, um, was it a merger or an acquisition? What Allied Signal. Yeah, was it a merger or acquisition? It was a merger? Uh, it was really, it was an acquisition by Allied Signal of Honeywell. Honeywell. They kept the Honeywell name and went to the Allied Signal headquarters in New Jersey. Okay. So you have that. And uh, they're looking to turn the company around. The board hires you. And why... Why was everyone betting against you? Why, why was there, I don't know if should say everyone betting against you. Let me rephrase. Uh, CNBC, Dave Kernan was basically saying, this guy, he don't have the right stuff. I think the Wall Street Journal also at the time was saying, you know, you don't have the right stuff either. I remember there were a couple of editorials about Honeywell. They just weren't doing well. You had a, you had environmental problems. Uh, in fact, the company was. Man, you do your homework really well, Charles. I gotta say. Hey, you know, I'm speaking to you, man. I better, I better do my homework. You know, this is not. A... Well, well, one of my learnings has been that all those negative things people said back at the beginning, they completely forget later on. Oh, 100 percent. And it was about six years into my tenure, I met with the Wall Street Journal editorial board, and the person who was the leader of it at the time, uh, looked at me and right away said, uh, I went back and read all the stuff that we wrote about you and we were not kind and it wasn't right. No, there, there said, wasn't oh, kind great. and right. Gonna... They, they were downright nasty. If you could look them up on the web, because, uh, you know, you get the Wall Street Journal, they, they, were, they, were, they were being cruel. They were being, no, I should say cruel. They were being nasty when they didn't have to be nasty. You know, I could disagree with what you did this, that, but they don't have to be personal. And they were questioning a lot uh, of people. It, it, yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, a lot of it ended up being along the lines of uh, what was said on CNBC, which is we're not sure this company can be turned around. And if it can, you're we're not, not the- sure this is the guy who can do it. He didn't make it to the first tier of the GE succession race. And he wasn't even the first choice to run Honeywell, both of which were true. By the way. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. That, that, you know, you, you frame it that way. It's like. The company can't be turned around, and we got a guy who I guarantee you will not turn it around. So we got blank on the end of both sides of the stick, right? So you couldn't pick a worse situation. That's pretty nasty. I don't know. Maybe I have a thin skin coming from New York, but I don't know. No, it was it was pretty uncomfortable in the beginning, and whether it was analysts, reporters, or anything else. And this is why I still give a lot of credit, if I can, to Jim Cramer, because I had only been in the job. Uh, I'd say about a year at that point. And I was getting beaten up because I'd taken reserves for environmental asbestos and uh, started funding the pension and try, trying to do all these things. Jim Cramer was the first guy to come out publicly and say, finally, somebody is doing the right things at Honeywell. This is a story to watch. And it still took a year or two for analysts to slowly start coming on board. But Jim, I've always given him all kinds of credit because of his ability to think independently about it. You know, you look, you look back at that, uh, where I think you, Honeywell had, I think it was, what, 30, 40-year liability on this that they never solved uh, with the environmental issues, and especially in Baltimore, I think it was, yeah. right? Yeah, so they kept... Pissed. Oh, we had a bunch of them. Oh, it was just terrible. It, I remember you looked at Honeywell as, as just as, as an investment there were just so many live wires there that could explode at any time. It really had a leap. Really, there were so many things. There were so many fires, literally. Uh, uh, forget about the environment. Yeah. You know, forget about the environment, literally. But just the 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 um, 
the uh, negative the negative reaction. You just like Honeywell was trying to piss off as many people as they can by just doing the wrong thing constantly. <laughs> right? You, they, they, <laughs> Dave, am I right or wrong with yeah, that? It was a, a skill set, yes. It was, how to piss off as many people. So you come in, and I think this is a really important story for people to hear. You didn't do what was the financially right thing. It, what that that not that's not what was driving you because it was take a while for that to even filter down to the income statement, and even then it might not have ever filtered down. So you did the right thing, and the repercussions were just were, everything just worked for you. Could you share that with us, with with uh, especially with Baltimore? Yeah. Um... There were a number of things we had to solve, to your point. Uh, the first one was scrubbing the financial foundation to get something that was buildable. Because when more than 30% of your earnings are coming from one-time items, accounting transactions, one-time deals, that's you, you just you can't grow from that. You've got no base. Same thing with the asbestos liabilities, same thing with the pension fund, same thing with investments for the long term. If you haven't done any of this stuff, then um, you're never going to get anywhere. You, you have to scrub it down to the foundation and make sure that you're building on something solid. Environmental was uh, I'd been given the advice by my predecessor that the only way to handle environmental was to fight it in court until you lose and then pay. And I remember sitting there and thinking, well, geez, you know, I'm kind of a product of the 60s, and it's not exactly how I want to think about myself. Um, this is just a ticking time bomb. All these things get more expensive over time, especially if you're uh, adversarial. And do, do I want my employees to feel like they're a part of a company that kind of skirts issues like this and just tries to be clever and get by it? And I thought, no, this is not the this is not who I want to be getting back to deciding who you want to be. That's not who I, I don't want to be sitting here 15 years later saying I can pass the same problems on to my successor with that same silly strategy. So I uh, took a different tack and hired a very good environmental lawyer, uh, two of them actually, and said, okay, I want to resolve all of our environmental liabilities. And if you have a 100-year-old chemical company, which we did with Allied Chemical, uh, you've got environmental issues because the law has changed and that just changed all the liability. We can argue about whether the laws are correct or not, but it is what it is. So I told them, okay, uh, let's go uh, look at this as a 10-year project to get this all resolved. and uh, I'm going to assume that it'll cost me $2 billion. And, and I had no idea, but that seemed like an awful lot of money. When our market cap was only 20 or $22 billion at the time, uh, I thought I was making a pretty big commitment. Well, it actually took us 15 years, cost me $3.5 billion. But as a result of that- Wait, hang on, hang on. Don't, 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 don't tell the results yet. Don't tell the results yet. I want to, I want to frame this properly. You spent yeah. $3.5 billion, uh, which, mm -hmm. which, which did not go into anything to increase the share, or appear, it doesn't appear that, anything to increase shareholder value. You didn't build plants, not capital expenditures, not new product line, nothing. This was $3.5 billion to make up for past mistakes that compounded. 
So fiscally, this was not the smartest thing to do, especially when that's 10 to 15% of your market cap pissing money out the window. <laughs> you could have done much better fighting in a court, settling for a billion dollars, and called yourself a winner. Agreed? Yeah, I'd say that's probably true. Okay, good. And uh, I, I viewed it differently, though. I, uh, I thought if I really believe that this is the right thing to do for the long-term value of the company, so getting back to that uh, winning now, winning later, I thought, okay, yeah, it sucks. I wish I didn't have to deal with this, but I do. And I can't turn a blind eye to it. I need to address it. And we went from being vilified federally and at the state level to being the poster boys for how a big company should operate. Uh, if you take Lake Onondaga in upstate New York, uh, that went from being considered the most polluted lake in America because of the sewage that Syracuse, the city of Syracuse, put in the water, plus all the historic issues that we had. And by working with Syracuse and putting in hundreds of millions of dollars and working with the federal government, we developed a plan, and now you can swim in the lake. And you don't, it's not like you can uh, swim, but you know, make sure you take a shower afterwards. The water is clean. Our own folks swim in it, and it is a huge success story. Same thing with Baltimore Harbor that uh, you were just talking about, where we worked cooperatively uh, with the government, state and uh, uh, federal and, and county, to uh, arrive at a solution that cleaned it all up so that they could actually build on these sites again, that it was safe for people. And we ended up completely turning our image around. And I can remember having a uh, a new one came up. We didn't even know existed. There was a park where kids played in uh, Maryland that they discovered had arsenic in the in the soil. Now it wasn't going to kill anybody, but nobody wants their kids playing in a park that's got arsenic in it. So uh, the state fully expected that we were going to do the big company thing and just fight it. And instead, we told them immediately, "Sorry, we didn't even know it was there." Uh, we'll remediate the whole thing. And within a year, we fixed that entire park, uh, addressed it so that everything was removed and new soil brought in, kids could play in it again uh, very safely. And I had a U.S. senator pull me aside to say, you guys are a class act. And if there's ever anything I can do for Honeywell, please let me know, because you guys act the way a big company should. Well, now, I wasn't looking for that in the beginning. We were just looking to say, okay, th this is our name on it. This is not how we want to be uh, treated or thought about. And uh, ended up in a much better place than I think anybody ever expected. And it was kind of nice 15 years later, after starting where we did, to be getting awards, not just for financial performance, but for environmental performance, like from the uh, Audubon Society. That's a nice change. And it made employees feel better. And I'd have to say when I first started it, uh, my environmental folks and my uh, PR folks wanted us to be very public about what we were doing and what we were accomplishing. And I said, no, absolutely not. I'm scared to death of attracting the crazies because you get people who have nothing to do but yell and scream. 
And whatever you're doing, it's not good enough because you're a big company. So by definition, you're bad. And I said, nope, we keep this under the radar until it's just about done. Well, it was like the 11th year of my 15 years there. I finally said, okay, uh, we can be more public about this. I was amazed at the positive reaction, especially from employees, because they didn't know that we were doing all this because I kept it quiet. I didn't want it showing up in the press and attracting the crazies. And man, what it did to make employees just feel better about the company, you mean we can have a stock price that's over a hundred bucks and we've done this sort of thing also, I can go home and be proud of my company with my kids. Very gratifying. Yeah. And you know, it's, um, it, it goes to speak of uh, when capitalism is done the right way, where it's not just, yes. greed, it, 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 the repercussions are huge, huge to the point where that guy's playing with his kid and feels happy waking up every morning and coming down to work. Yep, that is exactly right. They, uh, I've always said 90% of people want to go home at night being able to brag to their spouse and kids about where they work and what they did that day. They want to be proud of what they're associated with, and they want to be able to say they're making a difference. They're not just a pair of hands or... Uh, get this repetitive task done hour by hour. They want to feel like they're making a contribution. And that's a big part of building a culture. Yeah, absolutely. Two more things, Dave, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll cut it here. I could speak to you for the next 10 hours, man. I am so, I, I just learned, <laughs> no, because you, you've not only, you, you've, everything that you speak about is, is not so hard to fathom. It doesn't take spreadsheets to figure out. It's common sense and dealing with the greater good. And at the same time, you're showing how you can increase shareholder value, make your employees happier, more productive people, and make the world, and I'm not trying to sound 60 flower child, but a better place. You know, it's, it's, it, yeah. it, it's not pie in the sky, and it's, it's not something that's impossible. Uh, that, that's, to me, that's... Well, uh, to, to, to build on your point, uh, doing well gives you the resources to do all those other things that are important to society. And it's one of the reasons why we want to have a very good economy. The better your economy, the more resources you have to do things. And finally, um, while a lot of things are common sense, there's an old saying that I've always liked and use a lot that says common sense is very uncommon. And boy, <laughs> that is true. You know, just the, just from the shareholder value, from the economic perspective, you've created your team. I, I, I'm not going to give you credit, but you had a brilliant bunch of people who are like-minded that you built around you to help you facilitate this. And uh, I've watched some of your interviews, and the first thing you do is you point to your team and the people you work with, which the modesty is just staggering to me. So here, you created over 2,500 millionaires in your company who in F401ks had Honeywell stock. You increased the shareholder value, you increased the stock price so uh, through increasing the underlying worth of the business that pension plans made more money. Yeah. Pension plan. You've created people who've invested alongside you extremely wealthy uh, and just a better quality of life just in your small neck of the woods. 
Yeah, I have to say, I'm, uh, I always like being able to say that whether they were investors, employees, customers, suppliers, I wanted everybody to be able to say that they did very well, made a lot of money while they were associated with me. And one of the statistics that I'm most proud of is that 2,500 401k millionaires, uh, 95% of them are below what we would call the executive level. And the lowest uh, paid person in that bunch made $43,000 a year and became a 401k millionaire because they just steadily took uh, maxed out in terms of their own contribution. All of our contribution was in stock and they just left it all in Honeywell stock. And as Honeywell continued to prosper and do well, this guy making 43,000 bucks a year became a millionaire. Amazing. And man, Amazing. that makes me feel good. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's just, the, you know, you think, okay, millionaire, but the guy's able to put his kids through school. He's able to help his sick parents. He's able to have a better retirement. Just the quality of life that uh, this afforded him is just absolutely, you know, it's, it's, it's just compounds. It's just amazing. Last thing I want to ask you is this, Dave. Yep. Is I've always looked investing in any company is I look at three things. Mm -hmm. I look at the industry. I want to make sure it's an industry with a tailwind because if you own a I think Bill, yep. if, if you own a buggy whip business, I don't care how Buffett owned the Washington Post. No matter how great a brilliant businessman, <laughs> you just can't fight a headwind. And okay, newspapers. Uh -huh. uh, second thing I look at is a CEO. I want a CEO with a track record. I want a CEO that has increased shareholder value. And last thing, I want to buy at a bargain price. I just want you to speak just for a moment. How important, when you look at other companies as an investor now and other projects you do, how important is it, based on your experience and what impact you have, is finding the right manager? Oh, it's a, a huge deal. Mm. Uh, building on your point first, uh, I had this phrase, great positions in good industries. And I still look at it that way. Even when we, I did a SPAC and went, uh, uh, ended up combining with a company called Vertive, I did it because they had a great position in a good industry focused on data centers. And it's done very well, as you know, we went out at 10 and a year and a half later, we're 27, uh, 28 bucks and performing very well. So that matters. The second one though, uh, is a bigger deal than it gets credit for. And I think too many of these like comp rating and institutional analysis kind of um, companies they look at things and figure, you know, leaders are light bulbs. You unscrew one, put in another, it's 100 watts, you get 100 watts. Well, like anything else, there's a standard distribution to the S&P 500 CEO leaders. And picking the ones who are at the far end of the performance tail makes a difference. Figuring out who those people are. Because, yeah, if you have a great position in a good industry, you can probably still uh, overcome having an average leader. But if you can have what we call a GPGI, great position in a good industry, combine it with a very good leader, man, world's your oyster at that point. And I would say, even if you feel on that third item you have overpaid, you are still going to do very well. So I would rank... Um, those criteria are in exactly the order you did. Uh, first, make sure it's GPGI. Second, make sure you've, you've got a really good leader. And then third, 
I'd say uh, I wouldn't worry about it too much. If the uh, if you've got those first two, you're probably still going to do well. And I, th I think I might have mentioned that I can remember talking to investors and they'd say, yeah, we love Honeywell. We're just waiting for it to dip and, uh, you know, then we'll buy. And I would say, well, unless there's a recession, it ain't a gonna dip. I'm not going to let it do that. <laughs> you know, we've, I know what's coming. I know how we're performing. I know how we're investing. So you're never going to get your chance. And there were people who, because they felt like uh, it was already high and they were going to wait for a good price, uh, missed out on, we'll say, 600 points of the 800 points of outperformance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 100%. There's that short-termism, you know. How did you do next quarter? You missed your next quarter, your next this? They're <laughs> out. It's just absolutely staggering. People who are paid to invest money over the long term look at it over 13 weeks. Never understood that. <laughs> right? They're given long-term pension money, and they look at it every 13 weeks. If you owned a dry cleaning store, <laughs> would you would you would you would you sell the business the first day there was it was sunshine and no rain and no one bringing any clothes? And then you buy it. It just it just makes no sense to me. And and it goes back to I think uh, just to, just to almost come to almost a conclusion here is of our conversation. But I wish I could speak to you longer. Is that most of the people who make these kinds of decisions never owned a business. They have never owned a lemonade stand. They never they yeah. never they never knew what it was like to go to sleep at night and trying to figure out how am I going to make payroll. I think uh, that's an interesting perspective to have. I'd, have uh, I'd say that's probably true. Uh, the other one that's kind of struck me, though, is um, I'm fond of saying independent thinking is a lot more rare than being smart. And that you can find a lot of smart people, uh, great educations, do well on tests, uh, know why things are the way they are. But uh, you don't do a great job investing by just knowing what everybody else is doing and how they're analyzing things. You have to be able to look at things independently and say, okay, do I agree with what the consensus is or what the herd seems to be thinking? And that ability to think independently doesn't mean the herd is always wrong, but it means if you can figure out those areas where the herd is incorrect and you do something differently, you'll do very well. And that ability to think independently, I'd say, especially with some of the schooling that gets done, um, is not so not so easy to come by. It's a it's a skill you have to develop. And I credit my mom and dad with I, I would some people think I have it to a fault, but I would credit my mom and dad, even though, like I said, they uh, six months and two days of high school were both very independent thinkers. And my dad used to always say, "Be a leader, not a follower." My mom used to always say, think for yourself whenever you did the, you know, all my friends are doing it. Uh, that kind of, while irritating to hear the thousands of times you hear it as a kid, end up, I think, making a difference over time. Yeah, my father used to say every time, but that everyone else was doing it. If everyone else was jumping off a bridge, would you jump off? <laughs> you know, that was his always step. Oh, God. And it made sense. No. My, so think differently. That was the, that was the same phrase my mom used. And it's really irritating when you keep hearing it. But of course, I guess she kept hearing from me that all my friends were doing it too. Makes sense. The name of the book, folks, is Winning Now, Winning Later, How Companies Can Succeed in the Short Term While Investing for the Long Term, written by Dave Cody. I, I highly, I never, ever recommended a business book. I think this is probably one of the better business <laughs> books I have ever read because it's written by a guy 
who actually not only, you know, wrote it, but he actually succeeded in doing it. And example after example, and one more thing before I even let you go, I don't think I'm going to let you go yet, but your book, what I liked about your book is unlike other business books, you gave a story, you made a point and you moved on. Your stories were not unrelated to the point. Your stories supported oh, and made the point. And you know, when you read all these crappy business books, their stories are just there to make to be stories. They have nothing to do made with the point. But every one of your stories <laughs> made the point. And I can remember, and look, I, I read this, uh, you know, just over the weekend, but I remember some of the stories that just stuck out of my head is the environmental problem. And, and I say, wow, you do the right thing because it's the right thing and stuff will happen to you. Yeah. It really does. It may not seem like it sometimes, but if you do it and you do it right, it does work. Wow. Yeah. And I can say we're implementing the book at Vertive. It's uh, when you ask, talk to the Vertive folks. So this is why I know it works. It's working in a, it's not like it was unique to Honeywell. If you ask the Vertive folks, they'll just say, well, we're doing what's in the book. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. Uh, Dave, you did a great service to the business community. I want to say not only the business community, and this is the point folks, you don't have to be running a Fortune 500 company. If you own a hardware store on the corner, the lessons in here are just as applicable, if not more so, because it's you. It's not 40 layers of management that you have to deal with and get the message through. Get it through to your customer. Get it through the people that are working around you. And change is not hard to come by. It just actually works. And lo and behold, you make more money and be happier. Yep, absolutely true. And thank you for saying that, because... Uh, there's a tendency for people to think, oh, this is, you know, Fortune 500 CEO stuff. And I've tried to tell them, no, this is stuff that whether you're early in your career, late in your career, small business, big business, nonprofit, these are all principles that are applicable anywhere. Yeah. And yeah. it's worth, yeah. it, 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 it should cause you to think and think about how you're doing things and are you doing it the right way? And could you improve you and your organization's performance overall by changing how you're doing some things. Yeah. Yeah. Just really great stuff. Dave, thanks so much, man. This has been a treat and my honor. I just, uh, I'm so privileged that I was able to spend so much time with you. I wish I could spend more time with you, but uh, I, I get the book folks really, really well worth the 20 bucks. You're going to gain a lot more out of it. And Dave, thanks so much and God bless and continue doing great stuff. <laughs> Well, thank you kindly. And uh, I got to say, I really enjoyed it, Charles. So you have a real knack for how you do this stuff. Thanks for making it so much fun. Great, man. Thanks so much, Dave. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.